Well, remember chapter 14 was on the issue of doubtful things, or we would say today, gray areas. All that's in the Bible is true, but not all truth that exists is in the Bible. God has it that we would learn wisdom from one another through experience and through just life of walking in the Spirit. The Bible says that all good things come from above, and there are many things that God has given to man um, through all kinds of different methods. A thing that pops to mind is various medicines or various skills and, and operations. God can heal supernaturally, but sometimes he wants another good way from heaven to open up through uh, medicine and through science and many other things that we could go on uh, to look at. But there are some issues that in certain cultures and in certain time periods that to one person seems very evident that is wrong, but to another person it seems very evident that it's not wrong for them to do. Now we're not talking about things that are obvious in the scripture. The Bible says, for example, to not commit adultery or to steal or uh, to be intoxicated. I mean, these are all clear commands from God. So if somebody would say, well, God's given me the okay to go live in adultery or fornication or to be able to get drunk only once a week, but God's given me, we'd say, no, 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 no. We're not talking about clear things that God has called sin or um, given us liberty for either way. We're talking about things that are doubtful, that are, that are not 100% clear. And I, obviously, God meant it to be that way. God is, is amazing uh, in the way he thinks. His ways are past our ways. His thoughts are past our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth. And so these gray areas doesn't mean a, a lack of scripture. It simply means he's given us these areas to see how we would deal with them. How we'd, we would resolve them. And as we went into chapter 14, he says, hey, the, the issue here is, are you going to let what you drink or what you eat be an issue over your brother being built up and growing in the Lord? If that thing of what you're eating or drinking or whatever the other gray area may be, is it more important than him not being stumbled and him not being sort of neutralized for a time before he can continue his growth in the Lord? And, uh, and Paul talks about it in a very heavy way in uh, 2 Corinthians 8 when he says, hey, if my eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols stumbles my brother, I'll never eat meat again. And then he goes on to say, but if you have stumbled your brother over your liberty, the one whom Christ died for, you're going to have to stand before God and give an account of that. So it is, it is a heavy issue how we resolve this. And sort of giving the final points on this, in case you missed it, in chapter 15 here, he just now blatantly says it clearly. We then who are strong, that is those who have more liberty, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. There's the issue. But it pleases me to be able to eat that or to drink that or whatever the area may be. I understand that brings some joy, gratification. Uh, maybe there's some other issues in it. You know, it brings you remembrance of your dad or some of the happiest times in your childhood or whatever it is. I, I understand there's some benefit to you in that liberty, but yet it radically stumbles uh, your brother. 
And, uh, you know, last week I was talking about meat being sacrificed to idols. And I said, you know, it's irrelevant. It doesn't really happen today. And, and uh, a brother who lived in uh, Saudi Arabia for seven years said, no, on Ramadan, they actually, right in my yard, uh, killed a goat and, and gave it unto Allah. And then, as their tradition was, that I was to take half of it and uh, enjoy it and eat it at my house. And, and I had to very politely say no. <laughs> I'm not going to eat meat sacrificed to idols, or in this case, to, uh, to the Islam religion. And so I guess it does happen today, no doubt in many parts, but most people aren't touched by that. But either way, here we, we see the, the, the clear statement. It's not about pleasing ourselves. And let me just say, the more we grow in the Lord, the more we grow in maturity as a human being, we become less self-centered and more other-centered. I think children naturally do that as you grow. They become more sensitive to others. And then you get married and you sort of learn, oh man, my selfish ways grieves my spouse. And then you have kids and you realize, oh boy, you know, uh, I just want a second for myself. You know, I want a little hour of me time and you don't get it. And, uh, and, you, and you begin to realize, man, I'm selfish in so many ways. And in the same in the Lord, we come to the place to say, you know, it's not about me at all. It's 100% what's glorifying God and what is not stumbling my brother, but building my brother up. And in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor, or in this scenario, it's sort of a generic word, his brother in the Lord, for his good, leading to edification. The word edification just means to build up. So again, live a life that, uh, that's going to build others up and uh, keep that in your mind as what you say and how you live and what you do or don't do. And in verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, quoting here now out of Psalms 69 verse 9, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And here this is where we, we get, begin to get the picture that Jesus was enthroned in heaven, a place of no pain, no sorrow, no suffering. But yet he came to earth not because it pleased him, but that it would please us. And there in the garden of Gethsemane when he was realizing the full impact of the, the pain and the suffering and, of course, the sin of all of mankind coming upon one who was sinless. He said, Father, if there's any other way for this cup to pass, but not my will, thy will be done. And there was a, a rhetorical silence there because the answer was no. There is no other way. But yet Jesus, with joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? Because he knew how it would bless us in having freedom from sin and the gift of eternal life. And so that's our example. Jesus, all that he did coming to earth was to please us, to bless us, to serve us. And in verse 4, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So as we go back from Genesis and read all the scriptures up until Christ dies and raises again, all of those blessed people impart 
They applied them in part. They understood them in part. But now Christ has risen from the dead and now God's Holy Spirit lives in every believer. That old sin nature is gone. It's ripped out as we saw in Romans 2. And now we can, by the power of God's Spirit living in us, understand the fullness of the scriptures. And what do we discover? That they all are a type or a picture or an illustration, an an allegory or analogy of Jesus and his work in our life. And so we, in the last days, once Jesus raised from the the dead, began the last days, the New Testament dispensation of believers. All the scriptures are really for us. Yeah, they help people to the light they could see it, but really the big giant uh, bundle is is now a blessings of the word are are placed upon us. We're uh, looking right now on Wednesday nights in Hebrews. And there's three chapters on Melchizedek, a guy who was quickly mentioned in Genesis 14. But now as we come into Hebrews, we realize it's Jesus. The whole thing was pointing us to Jesus. Could Abraham see that? No. Was he blessed by Melchizedek? Absolutely. Was everybody reading that story about Abraham through the ages blessed? Yes. But now the full revelation of Jesus as Melchizedek, we now have the complete blessing And our eyes are completely open to see all that God wanted to reveal, lacking nothing. And so we should just sort of be stopped in our track to realize we, of all people who have ever lived on this planet, have a greater light, have a greater blessing to understand God in a fuller way than any man in history. And of course, you know, it was hard to get to the scriptures. They were in scrolls and they were very expensive and and few people could get to them. But then the Gutenberg printing press came out. The first book ever printed on that press was the Bible in 1455. And of course, even then, having a printed book of the Bible, as convenient as that was, was only the richest of the rich could afford it. And it was slow going. But then they began to learn quicker and cheaper ways until today. In the last hundred years of mankind, We now have Bibles very cheap and throughout the world. And now they've been in uh, many different languages. Almost every language of the world has now has a Bible printed in their hands. I've traveled around the world and when I go into a hotel, I always like to open that drawer and there it is, the Gideon's Bible. And it just sort of blows my mind. That all over the world, there is the printed Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And of course, now we have them on our cell phones and computers and iPads and all kinds of stuff. It's, it's just amazing how it's right there in our fingertips whenever we desire it. And of course, the truth of it has been sort of held back. And now the the, the gates of the dam have been opened for us in the last of the last days, flooded upon us. And so in these last days, as throughout history, some people are going through severe persecution for being Christians, some none, but yet we all have our difficulties and trials. And God is saying, you, although you are going through maybe the darkest time in human history in many ways, yet you have a greater light than anyone's had in history. And the full peace or patience, the endurance 
that you can receive through knowing God and knowing his word and the full impact of his comfort, uh, you can have it in a greater proportion than anyone in all of history. And again, that we might have hope. We're going to see this several times in this chapter. The word hope is not, I hope it happens, fingers crossed. In the Greek, the word hope, it's going to happen. It's not if, it's when. And we're able to put our eyes upon Christ now and, and us in the last days in a more fuller sense than ever before. We know Christ and, and know him from Genesis to Revelation and we can get our eyes upon him as he's seated at the right hand of the Father. That our salvation is nearer than when it, we first believed as we saw in Romans 13 and we can now get our eyes upon the Lord and upon the glory to come. We can see our name written in the Lamb's book of life and we can see that place coming very soon. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering to be with the Lord forever and ever. And in verse five, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded towards one another according to Christ Jesus. So now that you've come to know the God of patience, let that patience be in you. Now that you know the God of comfort, let that comfort be in you and that you would be like-minded towards one another. We saw, as he, he says, that everybody would have the same heart, would have the same mind. Not together we make up that, but no, we would have the mind of Christ. In Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4, looking at the mind of Christ, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let us each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. This is the mind of Christ. Look at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself as a man. He became the servant of all men, even to the point of death. And in that state in, in human flesh, he saw everybody's interests more important than his interests. He saw everybody as more important than himself. And that's the way he lived. And that's the way he, he ministered. And that we all now would come of that same mind as Christ with that humility, with that care, with that love, with that endurance, with that comfort, with that, that mindset, we're here to serve and to bless one another. And in verse seven, therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. And boy, we, we get that picture clearly throughout the Bible, but especially in the gospels. There's this woman completely rejected by her Samaritan society the woman at the well, and Jesus receives her. The woman caught in the act of adultery, wanting to stone her, but Jesus receives her. Zacchaeus, who had been, again, ostracized from the Jewish society because he became a tax collector for the Romans, and we know that he was a very dishonest man, but he became very rich through his dishonesty. But Jesus called that wee little man out of the tree and went to eat with them, and at the end, Zacchaeus says, I repent, and Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. We see that even amongst the apostles, Jesus <laughs> did not uh, in any way choose the cream of the crop. There are some pretty weak and foolish people that the Lord received. And of course, the greatest testimony of all, you, me. Did God say, well, I don't know if I want you in our club. You know, I'm, you got, you're, you're pretty sinful and weak and boy, you got a lot of... A lot of extra baggage. I'm not so sure about this. 
I'll give you a three-year probationary period and we'll just see how much you read the Bible like you're supposed to. And, you know, we'll, we'll just sort of give it a look-see to see how much you mature. And, and uh, you know, after three years, I'll, I'll let you know. Is that the way he received us? No. All our sin, all our brokenness. How many of us came to Christ in drunken state? In a, in a state hooked on drugs? In a, in a state where you'd, your foolishness and your greed had destroyed your own finances, maybe your own family? We came with nothing to add. <laughs> nothing but brokenness and strife and a lot of stupidity and foolishness. But yet even then, Christ with his open arms, received us gladly. And how we need to have that same heart. This is what brings glory to God the Father. That we would just come and, and love them and hug them and, and embrace them. And, you know, through the years, a little over 25 years now, we've been here as a church. And, you know, so many stories of parents coming saying, my, my kid was just a complete isolation. His life was messed up. He was turning to drugs or to pornography. He had no friends. And somebody invited him to come to youth group. And now he's just so happy all the time. He can't wait till church is coming. And, and something's happened to him. You received him. And it's so healing. Isn't it, isn't it healing just to be received? To be accepted? And here he's saying now, you have that power. You are a representative of Christ. You are an ambassador of Christ. And we often want to build our little world that's comfortable to us, where we don't have to give as much, that we don't have to associate with certain people that make me uncomfortable. And I want to be careful who I embrace because that may take up more time than I really want to give. It may cause me to have to serve and to give and to counsel and to care for and to give rides to more than I want. And so I gotta be very careful who I let into my circle so it doesn't demand more of me than I, I really wanna give. And how opposite it was of Christ. And here he's saying with us that we need to have this same mind of Christ, not one of or two of us, but all of us. With verse six there, I think I skipped that a minute ago, of one mind, of one mouth, we glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of us with the same heart of a servant the same mind, to see everybody's interests more important than our own, to see everybody as more important than ourselves, with this same heart of God, and we see it manifest through His Son, Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father, would have that same heart of embracing, of accepting, of loving, of receiving. And in verse 8, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God. So he's making a clear note here that the Jews, that Jesus was the Messiah to the Jews first. Remember, Paul covers this in Romans 1, that the gospel must first be preached to the Jews and after that to the Gentiles. As we study through the scriptures, the Messiah was given to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That Jesus grew up as a Jew he was a Jew. He kept the law perfectly as a Jew. He came out of the city of Nazareth that we have to, with us to this day. And from that little podunk town came the Messiah that the Jews might have 
everlasting life. But remember we saw in Romans 9, 10, and 11, it was God's plan from eternity, but yet they rejected their Messiah, and therefore the door opened to the Gentiles that God's mercy would reach all other people. In the the Bible's way of thinking, in the Jewish way of thinking, there's only two groups of people in the world, those who are Jews and those who are not. (laughs) And so the Messiah came to be the Messiah to the Jews, but now his mercy is open to all of mankind. And so he makes it clear first, though, that Christ came to be a servant, to be the Messiah, the Savior, to the circumcised, to the Jewish nation, wherever they may be in the world. For the truth of God, this is how God was revealing himself, his nature, to the world through the Jews and as he dealt with the Jews. And then to confirm the promises made to the fathers, that in Christ, many promises that were promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants have been fulfilled, but yet there are some that have not yet been fulfilled. And as we study on in the prophetic books, we see they are going to be fulfilled in the, mess, in the 1,000 year uh, millennial reign of Christ. And so he goes on to say now concerning the Gentiles. So verse 8, we have the Jews, the Jesus, the Messiah to the Jews. And now in verse 9, he's also the Messiah to the Gentiles. That the Gentiles might have glory or might glorify God for his mercy. As it's written, and we're going to have a number of scriptures quoted, Paul just had so, the word of God so deep in his heart. Uh, it didn't matter how insignificant the point might be. It was deep in his heart. And, and here in quoting Psalm 18, verse 49, as we come to the second part of verse 9, this is that quote. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So here he, he's prophesying a thousand years in advance, actually about 750 years in advance, that, um, that the Gentiles would be side by side with the Jews, praising the Messiah of the Jews, worshiping uh, this Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, who is, according to the flesh, man, but according to the Spirit, 100% God. And here's another quote in verse 10. From Deuteronomy 32, 43. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with who? His people. What is God's church today? It's a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And here he says, side by side, these Jews that would never even want you to touch them. They never would let you sit next to them. But here they are now free from the Old Testament law, side by side with Gentiles, praising the one God, the one Messiah. And in verse 11, quoting Psalm 117, verse 1, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. So in Jews and Gentiles, all of us just with a deep shout of praise, let's worship him. And in verse 12, and again, now quoting Isaiah, verse, chapter 11, verse 1 and verse 10, a combination of those verses. Therefore shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. So here we we see at the beginning, one of the most powerful messianic passages there in the beginning of Isaiah 11, talking about the Messiah is gonna come out of the, uh, the branch of Judah and specific from what region he would come from, the area of Naphtali. And this Jewish Messiah would rise up to be a light 
to a Jewish area around Galilee you talked about. And then before you finish that chapter, verses that often the Jews could not see because they were blinded to it, was a great, powerful quote of not only the Jews coming to receive the Messiah, but the Gentiles side by side having the same hope as the Jews in their Jewish Messiah. And in verse, chapter, verse 13 now, Now may the God of hope fill you, you Gentiles there in Rome, with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So now may this overwhelming hope of God fill you. And then look at the second part of verse 13, that you may abound in this hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That, that you guys would just be overwhelmed that God's Holy Spirit would bring you into this depth that your eyes are set upon Christ and the things above, not on the things of this earth. And, and you were just so filled with the confidence, the certainty that heaven's coming. It doesn't matter what persecution you go through. And boy, as you read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, the Roman Christians, or the Italian Christians, whatever you want to call them, the Roman citizens of those days, um, went through part of some of the hardest persecution that has ever happened on earth. Brutally, brutally killed. And he's saying no matter what comes your way, presently or in the future, that you'd be overwhelmed with the hope of God and just with all joy. And that word all can also go in front of peace. With all joy and all peace in what? In believing, in your faith, in Christ. Boy, we, we see that with the Apostle Paul, don't we? I think of that in Philippi when he was beaten with rods and then thrown into a deep dungeon, him and Silas. And there they were. You know, we, we see them singing and praising in a moment. But I think when they were going down in there, they were going, man, this isn't right. <laughs> Here I am trying to preach the gospel. I'm not supposed to be stuck in this Roman dungeon. And, and man, I'm just hurting now. I, I feel a protrusion from my back and my knee. I can't put my weight on it. And, and here we are, just rats running around us and something that doesn't look very fresh dripping on us. And, and then they begin to just encourage themselves in the Lord. And they, by the power of God's Spirit, just was filled with a hope. And that hope in Christ and, and all that he's going to do, that he knows what's going on now. This did not escape his notice. That he saw us in this dungeon before time began. That this isn't, you know, Satan won this one and we've got to suffer through it. No, God's allowed it to happen. Just like our, our brother Job. And here we are now and, you know, I, I don't feel angry. I should, but I don't. I just have such a joy in the Lord I have such a peace. I should be disturbed. I should be upset. I should be worried and angry and frustrated. And man, I just, I'm just so filled with the Spirit right now. And they begin to sing and to worship God. What, what an example that is. We often have trials <laughs> that aren't even, you know, they shouldn't even be written about. They're so insignificant. But yet, we need to come to that place to have that same feeling of that hope of God with such a deep joy and a deep peace that just continues to abound by the power of God's Holy Spirit that in everything give thanks, right? Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. And again, I say rejoice. And that's, that's a hard lesson to learn, but he's telling them there that God's taking them through that path and let it happen. 
And in verse 14, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Now, now Paul has never met these guys. He didn't start this church. And he's just going, man, I just... I'm just having a confidence that what I've seen God through his power of his Holy Spirit raising up maturing believers all over the world that I've been ministering to within this sphere, I'm sure it's happening within your sphere as well. That there is just the working of God's Holy Spirit as you meditate in the word. God's radically speaking to you the same things he's spoken to us and, and that the good works are just flowing from your life that you're able to love your enemy and pray for him and bless him and do good to him and, and that you're humbling yourself and being the servant of all men. And I'm, constant, I'm confident when I come to you, I'm gonna see the same exact work of Christ in you as it has been in us and that you just can't stop reading the scriptures. You're eating it up and God's speaking to you and you're filled with knowledge and it's not that you're immature with that knowledge, but you are, notice there, able to admonish. That's the word teach others also. That God's spirit is filling you up, that the godly character is in you, that God is speaking to you through his word, that his knowledge is filling you, and not to just a minimal degree, but to a degree that you are able to splash on others, teach others that which God has spoken to you. Now notice in verse 15 here, nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. So Paul, as we look at chapter 15 here, he's sort of reflecting on all the things that he has spoken to them through this letter. And many of them are very hard, very harsh, some serious rebuke, um, some attitudes they had towards the Jews that Gentiles should not be puffed up and, and say they're greater than the Jews because we're believing more in their Messiah than they are. And these things, and he's saying, I, I know as I'm writing this, some of you are going, who are you, Paul? Yeah, we've heard about you, but what gives you this right to, to enter my private world? What, what gives you the right to cross that line? You didn't start this church. It wasn't on the doctrine of Paul that, that we've been established here in Rome. And Paul is in essence saying, you're right. I, I didn't start the church and I didn't lead you to Christ. And it wasn't through my teaching that you've grown in Christ, but understand Verse 16, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, wherever they may be. Ministering the gospel of God to the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And this word offering here is, is that of a, a priest consecrating himself and consecrating the people unto God. And, and here he's saying that this is my ministry, it's to the Gentiles. Remember in Galatians 1 where Paul and Peter sort of wrestled together over how they were dealing with the Gentile church in Antioch and finally, after some heated words, they, they agreed upon, Peter, your ministry is to the Jews, but Paul, your ministry is to the Gentiles. And so he's saying that, that even though you're not within my immediate sphere of starting your church and leading you to Christ, God has given me a sphere that reaches to all the Gentiles throughout the world. And it's happening to this day, isn't it? Half of the books written in the New Testament are through the Apostle Paul 
as he received a divine revelation from God for the whole gospel of Christ. And so in essence, he's saying, this is the grace that God's given to me, even unto you. And, and it may seem like I'm crossing the line, but I'm not, because God's given me the calling. God's given me the grace. God's given me the boldness to come into your private world and, and to come into speaking to your life by the Holy Spirit, things that I understand aren't comfortable to you. They're not meant to be, but they're equally from God. And then in verse 17, therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. So I, I'm glorifying in the work that God's done through you. And, and the reality is, as much of what they had learned in Rome maybe didn't come directly from Paul, but it was Paul's doctrine that they were preaching. And he's, he's saying with great joy that I know that all that I'm speaking to you don't just pertain to you, but this is a word to God, to all peoples, Jew and Gentiles, throughout the generations, and as it is to this day, as we're studying it here. And in verse 18, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me. So I'm not going to exaggerate. Uh, and tell you some fabricated story. I don't need to. Whether in word or in deed to make the Gentiles obedient, I don't need to impress you with my credentials because what really happened is impressive enough. In verse 19, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem around uh, about Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So wherever I've been, Signs and wonders have come to confirm that this word is indeed the word from God uh, and that Jesus is the Messiah and he's the one you need to submit your life to. And as far as my ministry has reached from the, the west and to the east to this point, God has confirmed this message that I preach through powerful signs and wonders. And in verse 20 and so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. So my ministry is actually to go where they've never heard of Jesus at all. In many cases, they've never heard of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they have no knowledge of any of them or any of the stories of the Bible in which things God has done have been documented. And they have not heard about the Messiah coming from Israel. And I'm actually just going to a place and I have to start from A to Z explaining to them than to come to bring them to Christ. Hey, let me tell you something. Going to a culture that's never heard about Jesus and to, and to be able to preach to them, it's like putting a hot knife through butter. It is just so uncomplicated. <laughs> and it's so sweet. Often people are having to let go of past negative experiences with somebody who, who really is saying they're represented Christ, but they're not. Or sometimes they've been stumbled by various things of churches and pastors and Christians that used to be their next door neighbors or whatever. That's a very common place. But I remember right after the Iron Curtain fell and we were going into Hungary and then into Yugoslavia at that time. It's no longer Yugoslavia, but you got all the branches of Croatia and Bosnia and, and so forth. But we would go into a town, I'm thinking of one in particular, we went down to a place in, uh, in Serbia, a place called Novi Sad, <laughs> right after we had 
been there. That bridge was blown up. There's only one bridge that went into that city. But we were in there and, and uh, we had a conference for businessmen and we, we did some teaching and preaching. And, and then afterwards, Mike Harris, who had been there for a missionary for a while, just said, come on, guys. They walked right out into the street in front of that hotel, that big conference center. And he just began to preach Christ. And, and all of a sudden, there's probably at least 500 more crowded around us. And it was the message like you would teach it to the kindergarten class. And the majority of them, as they heard it, they, it was just, I can't explain it to you. The Holy Spirit's in the world convicting men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. God's already prepared the way to the working of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and the minds. But when you just simply share Christ and that they're a sinner and they need to be forgiven from their sin and Christ died and rose again for that, and just to see them just broken under the weight of their sin and so gladly rejoicing. And, and again, they had never heard about God and the communist system. Uh, they made sure that they were atheists and, and forget about God. That's just uh, a fanciful thing need, people that are weak need to believe in. And, and some of the groups came and they're like, hey, you know, how can you believe there's a God who created the world when evolution is, is a fact? And it's like, well, let's talk about it. It's not a fact. It's a theory. And begin to explain some serious holes in evolution. Or maybe it's a, another issue of, uh, you know, well, what about the people that died before Jesus uh, rose again, uh, where they are, whatever s- topics they had, we would simply answer those in a very simplistic fashion, and then they would just receive the Lord. And I can't, I can't explain it to you. It was just so refreshing because they were so ready. They had been ready for decades, <laughs> then to go home and tell their parents, and they just, I can't explain it to you. They just melted under the very simplistic gospel that we sort of yawn at, unfortunately. You know, here I am teaching through Romans 15. It's not one of the most exciting passages of the Bible. It's meaty, it's deep, but you gotta dig for it, you gotta want it. But many of you have heard this five times, maybe 15 times, with your own reading, maybe 50 times or more. And, and even the greatest things are just regular to you. You know, it's like talking to people who live at the foot of the Alps, <laughs> And you go there and you're looking at this going, is this a fairy tale or is this real? It's like, what? What's going on? It helps. It's like, oh yeah. You know, somebody who's living on the beach in Hawaii, you know, it's like, oh yeah, no big deal. Oh, another well, yeah, okay. It's, it's amazing how even the greatest things that have ever existed or exist, if they, we have them on a regular basis, it can be so devalued. And here, these people, Paul says, man, I just want to go where no one's ever heard anything. And it's such a joy. It's such a joy. And we started several churches that way, people coming to Christ and just couldn't stop reading the scriptures and stop praying. And, and they just constantly eat and drink and live Christ. Maybe as many of you did when you first came to Christ in your first love. But he goes on and quotes on this in Isaiah 52, verse 15, as we look here in Romans 15, verse 21. He says, uh, but as it's written in Isaiah 52, 15, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand or perceive or receive it. So here's a prophecy of 
where we're going to go and share the gospel with people who have zero knowledge about anything to do with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or anything to do with Jesus, and we're just going to go to them and say, hey, there's a God that you know not of, and I need to tell you about this God. And in verse 22, for this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. So he knows how dynamically powerful it's going to be when he reaches them and he fills in the gaps in their doctrine. Remember in Romans 1, he says, I know that God's blessed me and I'm going to bear this great fruit to you and complete that work. And he says that to many of the churches, that, that God's began because he had the revelation of the full knowledge of Christ as we've witnessed now in the New Testament. But he also said that you're going to bear fruit unto me. And so I want to receive what God's been speaking to you and hear the testimonies of your salvation, how rich and powerful they always are. But then in verse, but he's hindered. We see in the scriptures that sometimes God hinders him. He's going in a self-willed way that God's not choosing. Other times, Satan hindered him. Sometimes physical things hindered him. Financial things or, or bodily issues, uh, physical problems he had in his body. And in verse 23, but now no longer having a place in these parts, having a great desire these many years to come to you. Paul was a wanted man (laughs) in the area of the sphere where he's been preaching the gospel through the eastern part of the world. He is now the number one most wanted man. And uh, the Romans were looking for him. The Jews were looking for him to kill him, to put him in prison. And he says, you know, I, I'm not a free man here anymore. I got to get away for the safety of myself and those who travel with me. But for many years, I've just longed to come to you. So verse 24, when I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. If first I may enjoy your company for a while. So we happen to know the full story in Acts 20, 21, and 22. But Paul at this point is thinking he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to, that'll be the last time he's there. And then he's heading towards the Western world, Europe, if you would. And he's thinking, I'm just going to keep doing what I've always done in my missionary journeys, hitting the cities and preaching the gospel along the way. And one of the stops is going to be Spain. But we know, as you read Acts 20 to 22 and beyond, that when Paul got to Jerusalem, he would be arrested held by the Jews for a time, turned over to the Romans, and for years they kept him imprisoned. He would eventually make it to Spain, under Rome, but as a prisoner. And uh, so here he's, he's knowing this, but he also senses the other, because as we read on in verse 25, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. Saints are believers, everybody's a Christian. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor, Uh, among the saints who are in Jerusalem. The Christians in Jerusalem are severely persecuted. Remember, uh, if your parents didn't become Christians, they cut you off. Uh, Wives and husbands divorced uh, their believing spouse. Uh, it It was a very hard time, and great poverty had come upon the Christians there in Jerusalem. And it was in Paul's heart and others' hearts that they would go to the Gentiles and collect the finances to help their brother Uh, the Jewish brother in Jerusalem. And so he's in this right now. And again, you can read about this in Acts. And you can also read this about 2 Corinthians 8, uh, about giving a a deep, uh, powerful uh, contribution, not a small contribution. But in verse 27, it pleased them indeed, and they they are their debtors. So 
Again, talking about the Gentile believers, that was Paul's point, is that they've given you Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've given to you the Bible we call the Old Testament today. They gave you the Messiah. All the promises of God are now to you adopted Gentiles into the Jewish family. Yea and amen unto you. So now you are a debtor to your Jewish brethren who brought to you um, the Christianity that you have today. And with that, they took a great collection. They wanted Paul to go and a group of several other men uh, to be there to represent this fund that they're giving to the, the needs of Jerusalem. And he goes on in verse 27. So if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. And in verse 28, therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. I'm just planning on being there very quickly and then heading out on my new sphere of influence uh, heading into Europe, of what we know today as Europe. And in verse 29, I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessings of the gospel of Christ. When I come to you, I'm going to be filled up, overflowing, and all the things that you've heard about are going to happen amongst you. All the signs, the wonders, all of the revelation, it's going to come in the wisdom and the power of God. And then in verse 30, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. Now Paul, again, is sense, and as you read in Acts, there was Agapus and then Philip's four virgin daughters, and before they even spoke, he knew that eventually he would be imprisoned. Eventually he would be put to death. He didn't know when that was happening, but he, he, he sensed the, the demonic oppression and resistance. And now he's begging these guys that have never seen him, never known him except by reputation, saying, I need you guys to step up your prayer life. Wherever it's at, I need you to become a great prayer warrior. And on my behalf as well. And so the word there, I beg you, is just, it's a deep, deep, pleading on your hands and knees, begging you that through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of God's Spirit that you would be motivated and have a diligence and that you would strive. This, the root of this word here is agonizomai. We get our word agonize from it, that together in spirit, even though we're physically separated, we would agonize in prayer uh, to God for me. You know, it's funny how we often like to idealize certain people. And so here's the great apostle Paul. He doesn't need my prayers. He's sort of graduated out of human to superhuman. You know, God's powerfully using him. He doesn't need any of my help or prayers. But you know what? The Bible says that we all have the same flesh. There's not one sin that doesn't affect one of us that also affects all of us. And Paul was just a human being like you and I with all the same weaknesses and struggles and all that worked through him in a powerful way was through the power of God. And Paul here and in other places makes it clear, without your prayers, it's not gonna happen. I think of that passage in 2 Corinthians 1 where he said, I'm pushed above measure, beyond strength, despairing of life itself. And then he goes on to say, I, I'm alive today because of your prayers. And he goes, I know I'm going to go through these kind of things and deeper things, and I will continue to stay alive and move forward because of your prayers saving me. Paul knew 
that when we go to heaven, it's not going to be, praise Paul, it's, it, the blessing is going to be to all those people who linked with him together agonizing in prayers that these things happen. And, and so again, you know, with our fellowship here, I've said it a million times, we will never be stronger than our prayer life. We'll never move forward except on our knees. I think of that story of Billy Graham and his first pastorate. Things were not going well. They weren't happy with him. They weren't happy with his speaking. And there Billy Billy educated him saying, you know what? It doesn't matter who's in this pulpit. It's always going to come down to how are you praying for this man in this pulpit? And God's going to work mightily as we pray for the pastor and his leaders. And of course, as it goes on, Billy Graham, the prophetic voice for many, many decades now. And how many people are going to get to heaven and and have a great blessing and reward because it was through their prayers that God spoke and used Billy Graham mightily. In the same way Paul is saying, I'm just a wee little tiny Jewish guy. (laughs) I can get lost in the crowd very easily. But the calling God's had in my life, the work that God wants to do for my life, through your prayers, it's power, it, the power comes, it's ignited, it's the fuel, and that I will be able to do all that God's speaking to me and all that's in my heart because of your prayers. And boy, how we need to just come to, to realize that. Every time Jesus taught on prayer, it was on this aspect. Remember there in, in Luke chapter 11 when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Interesting, they never said, teach us to do miracles or teach us to speak. Teach us to walk on water. The beginning of his ministry, the end of his ministry, Lord, teach us to pray. Because if they knew they had the, the power of Jesus' prayer life, that they would have all that comes with uh, the rest of his ministry. And he taught them both times of, of enduring in prayer. There in Luke 11, he says, it's like a man coming to your house at night saying, give me some bread. I have no food to lay before the people who've come uh, out of town. I'm surprised by their coming this early. And he said, go away, I'm in bed, my kids are in bed, I I don't want to get out. And he said, not because he's his best friend, but because he persists, he'll get up and give him all the bread that he desires. And then Jesus says, so for you, ask, keep on asking, seek, keep on seeking, knock, keep on knocking. Everyone who asks will receive, everybody who seeks will find, everybody who knocks, the door will be open. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And then in Luke 18, he, he says, I want to tell you a parable that you always pray and don't lose heart. That's often typical what we do, isn't it? We lose heart going, boy, I don't know if God's hearing us. I don't know if any prayers are being answered, even though we've had a thousand prayers answered in a lifetime that we've seen. All of a sudden in this moment, it's, you know, we become pessimistic. And he said, there's a widow woman who needed help. She went to the judge and he did not help her, but yet she persisted. And finally he says, okay, what do you need? And, and, and the Lord said, take notice here. The judge said, not because I fear God, not because I respect man, just, I'm just tired of you wearing me out. And Jesus said, how much more your, not unfaithful, unloving, uncaring judge, but your judge who is God the Father will answer his children who cry out to him day and night. The inference was that we'd be just constantly praying, always in prayer, praying without ceasing. And those who were praying for Paul might be woke up or in the wee hours of the morning and this burden to pray for Paul might be there. Maybe they're in the middle of eating their lunch and all of a sudden they sense this overwhelming sense to pray for what's going on in Paul's life. And so again, he needed these prayer warriors to come along and link arms with him. 
And here finally in verse 31, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. (laughs) So he had a sense. He had a sense that, hey, turbulence is coming and that my service from Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Isn't that interesting? So far, much of Paul's ministry to the Jews, with Peter, he had strong contention. With the others, he had to take all these Jews from Jerusalem and go back to Jerusalem in Acts 15 and argue with them about keeping the law or not keeping the law. And here he is still, like all of us, we want to be accepted. We, we want to know that we bless people and not argued with them and upset them. And he's just saying, I, right now I'm, I'm batting zero on this. Uh, this time, may I come and, and the love and the grace and the, the wonderful fellowship that I have with the Gentile believers would now finally happen with the Jewish believers. And in verse 32, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace, or shalom, the Hebrew word would be, be with you all, amen. So now I'm coming to you and I just want it to be in the will of God, an overwhelming sense of the joy of God and that you would be refreshed, I would be refreshed as we have so, as I so have desired. And this moment right now, whatever you guys are going through and here's the Holy Spirit saying to you as well today, shalom. The word shalom just doesn't mean peace as in not being upset or at war. It means fullness, completeness, healing. You know, that's the neat thing. We come to Christ with all of our cracks and all of our baggage and all of our wounds. And slowly in spirit, soul, and body, God begins to make us whole. And that is the light. That's the salt. People see us and say, where does this dynamic aspect of you come? It's just... I have God in my life. There's a peace that I have with God and that peace is flooding every area of my life. And that shalom, the complete entirety of what God wants me to be, I am as I live in Christ. Amen? Well, Lord, we thank you as we have wrestled through this chapter, as Paul reflects upon this letter and his ministry and there are so many diamonds here in the rough that you want us to keep digging for and bringing out and Lord we know this is just so meaty so powerful we just ask today as we leave this place that we would be other centered that we would be very sensitive to be for edification of all men that we would all come together one day in full maturity of the same heart of the same mind as one man in the same attitude and heart as Jesus Christ himself the example so perfect for us as he was in human flesh that we would all minister to one another, that everybody would see everybody's interest as more important than their interest here. Everybody would see everybody as better than themselves and to have this mind that was in Christ Jesus to humble ourselves as servants. Lord, that we may decrease, that you might increase in our life. And Lord, in a powerful way today, give us a sweeter fellowship than we've ever known. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen, amen. May the Lord richly strengthen you and bless you this day. And go Chargers. Bye-bye. Right.